Good morning, Tri-Village Church. It's a blessing to have you here with us. And for those of you who uh, are here, it means the world to me because that means you, you braved the snow. You came here on a, on a day that maybe if I wasn't preaching, I wouldn't be here. Okay, so uh, no, nah, it's just me being honest. But uh, um, so hey, so glad to have you here with us. If you're new here, uh, my name is Will Franco. I'm the pastor here at the church, and it's a blessing to have you here with us. And uh, if you are new here, what we're doing is we are in the middle of a series entitled Living Hope. Um, what we're doing in this series is we are going section by section through the book of First Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First Peter. And this morning, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We have a Bible in the pew rack back there if you want one, or it'll be on the screen here behind me. So either way, you're good. So First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And here's what we're going to be doing this morning. This morning, we are going to be addressing the subject of marriage, of marriage. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at marriage under three headings, if you can put those three points up. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at the role of the wife. And then after we look at the role of the wife, we're going to look at the role of the husband. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the role of the bridegroom, okay? The role of the wife, the role of the husband, the role of the bridegroom. So let's jump in. The first thing that Peter talks to us about is the role of the wife. And here's what he's going to do. In this role of the wife, he gives us a job description, if you will. And he says there are three things that a wife is called to do. There are three things that a godly Christian wife is called to do in her marriage. Now, before I give you the list, I want to prepare you. These sound much, much worse than what they are, okay? So, so if you're going to hear them and you're going to be like, oh, wow. We're really going back uh, into like ancient history right now. This is very traditional, what, okay, very archa- archaic, but, but give me grace, okay? I'm going to give you a list, and then I promise I will explain all of them. And I promise I didn't come up with these words. These are words that Peter uses in the, in the, in the passage, okay? So according to Peter, there are three things that a wife is called to do in her role. The first thing is she needs to, a wife needs to submit themselves. They need to submit themselves. The second thing that they're called to do is a wife is called to behave themselves, and then the third thing is the wife is called to beautify themselves, which I don't know if beautify is a word, but it sounds right, okay? So those are the three things. A wife is called to submit themselves, a wife is called to behave themselves, and a wife is called to beautify themselves. Now, I know those sound very misogynistic and chauvinistic, I get it, but it's what the Bible says, okay? I will explain each one, I promise. Don't, don't, don't throw a stone at me, okay? The first thing that the wife is called to do in light of scripture, in light of this passage, is a wife is called to submit herself. Now, where do I get that? Well, look, what, look how Peter starts in verse 1. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. See, so that's not a word I made up. It's a word that Peter uses. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. So the question is, what does the word submit mean? Well, in, in, in the Bible, in the Greek, the word submit is actually a biblical term. I mean, sorry, not a, it's a military term. It's a term that was used in the military. And here's what it means to submit. To submit, it, it's, it's to be placed or arranged in a particular rank. That's what it actually means in Greek. That's why it was used in the military, because in the military, there are different ranks. So, so the word submit literally means to rank under. It has nothing to do with your value. It has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has nothing to do with your status. It is just the way that something is organized. In the military, at a workplace, there is an organization and the word submit means to rank under someone else. That's what the word actually means in 
the Greek. Now, here's what's interesting about the word submit. It's also written in the middle voice. And the reason why the middle voice is so important, for those of you who are kind of bothered by this word, word submit, here's what the middle voice means. The middle voice means in Greek that you are, you are taking the action, the individual is doing the action to themselves. It's an action that you are doing on yourself. This is why this is so important, because God is not forcing you to submit. Your husband's not forcing you to submit. Your pastor is not forcing you to submit. The word submit there is in the middle voice. And so what it's saying is that you are to submit voluntarily. It's in the middle voice. So you are to do it to yourself. It is a voluntary attitude of cooperation and yielding. That's what it means to submit. No one's forcing it on you. You are doing it to yourself. Now, let me unpack this concept of submission because I know that it's not an easy concept for people to relate to, right? So it's a hard, it's a hard concept for people to wrestle with. So, so let me unpack this. One of the things that, that we see in Scripture about this concept of submission is that submission has always been God's plan. And when I mean God's plan, I mean even outside of marriage. Submission has always been God's plan. Here's why. Because even before God created anything, God existed as a trinity, which is one God, three persons. And the three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is that Scripture tells us that the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. And yet, what we are told is that even though they are all God and all equal, one submits to the other. So according to Scripture, the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son, even though they are 100% God and 100% equal, okay? Okay. And so what you see is that submission has always been a part of God's plan. It's not something that happened after the fall or after sin came into the world, but submission has always been a part of God's plan. And so if you approach submission and you think, I am too good for submission, then what are you saying about Jesus then? Because Jesus has submitted to the Father, and that has nothing to do with his value or his status or his worth. So submission is not just seen in the Trinity, but it's also seen in Christianity. See, one of the things that Scripture says in James is that we are all to submit to God. And then in other places in Scripture, it says that we are all to submit to one another. And so what you see is that submission is not just a husband and wife thing. Submission is a Christianity thing. Submission is the disposition of God's kingdom. If you are going to be a Christian, the disposition, your attitude has to be one of submission, regardless of your gender, regardless of your marital status. So what we see about submission is that submission has always been a part of God's plan, okay? Now, here's the other thing that's interesting. If that's true, then what that means is that when, Adam, when God created Adam and Eve, he created it in that order, the, the, the wife submitting to the husband, not because he thought Eve was better or because Adam was better or because one of them was worse, but because God established it that way because God loves us. He, so even when something doesn't make sense, when, when we don't know what God's hand is doing, we have to trust his heart. Okay, when I don't understand God's hand, I have to trust God's heart. So even though it might seem inappropriate or, or uncalled for on the surface, we have to understand that it's a loving God that established marriage in this way. So he would have done it for his glory and for our good because that's why God does everything. Okay? So when God created Adam and Eve, submission didn't come after the fall. It came right from the beginning. And one of the best explanations of submission that I found, um, not just in Scripture, but outside extra-biblically in one of the commentaries I read was by Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is this old uh, Bible guy who died a long time ago. Look how he describes submission. I think this is such a beautiful description of it. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. This is what biblical submission is. 
And so if the reason why you kind of get anxious when we talk about submission, there's a good chance the reason why is because you have an unbiblical definition of submission. But this is what true biblical submission is. You're not above him, you're not below him, but you are alongside him. Why? So that you are equal with him, so that you are protected by him, so that you are loved by him. And no matter how you feel about what I'm saying, God has created women in such a way that there's a deep part of you that desires this. Even if it's like on the surface, you would never admit it. We were created by God in this way, okay? Now, here's the thing. Even though submission has always been a part of God's plan, ever since Genesis 3, submission has, has also always been a problem, right? Submission is a very problematic issue. Like when you bring up submission, it, it brings up emotions in you. It makes you feel a certain way. As a matter of fact, I was talking to my wife last night, and I said, when you hear the word submission and you're reacting in the flesh, what are some of the emotions that come up? And she's like, there's fear. There's the, 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 the anxiety of maybe being a floor, or, you know, floor mat, of being manipulated, of being abused. She's like, there's a lot of fears that come up when you bring up the word submission, right? I think the reason why the word submission is such a problem is because of Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, something really interesting happens. God shows up and he punishes both of them. But you got to listen to what God, how God punishes them. He says to Eve, listen, from now on, you are going to want to rule over your husband. But instead, he is going to rule over you. And listen, in both cases, the word rule there is a negative type of rule. It's not a good rule. It's not a godly rule or leadership. It is a, a tyrannical rule, an oppressive rule. So he says, listen, listen, because of the sin that you just committed, from this moment on, you're going to struggle with following and he's going to struggle with leading. You're going to want to control him and he instead is going to control you. But neither of those things were my plan. Because the word rule there is the negative rule. It's like a dictator. It is a, like a tyrant ruling. So here's what's interesting. Here's what one commentator said. Because of Genesis 3, in that one moment, both feminism and chauvinism were born. In Genesis 3, both feminism and chauvinism were born. Since, since Genesis 3, women struggle with submitting and men struggle with leading. So I don't blame women for struggle with submitting because there's a lot of men who are not followable. They're not, they're not guys you want to be around. I get it. But, but, but the reality is, is that it's both and. Both started. Feminism and chauvinism started in the same place. Women struggle with, lead, with following and men struggle with leading. All that stems from that moment in the garden. That's how dangerous sin is. It takes something that was beautiful before and has completely ruined it. Has totally and utterly ruined what God planned for you and for me. Here's the thing. If you're sitting here today and you're struggling with this, you're not the first Christian person that struggled with this. There are many godly women in history who struggled with the concept of submission. One of the godliest women in our generation who just passed away a, a couple years, maybe two, three years ago, is Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot. For those of you who don't know who Jim Elliot is, Jim Elliot was this missionary who went to Latin America and he was murdered for his faith. She became really famous. She went, we went on to remarry after, after that. But she's one of easiest, easily one of the godliest women in our generation. You would think if anyone, if, if anyone could have done submission, it was her. But look at what Elizabeth Elliot says. She says, I don't submit to my husband because I want to. I don't want to. I don't submit to my husband because I like to. I don't like to. 
I don't submit to my husband because it makes me feel good. It doesn't make me feel good. I submit to my husband because the scriptures command me to. I do it out of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so one of the godliest women who've lived in our generation struggled with submission. And so if you're struggling with it, I don't blame you. I get it. I get why all those emotions would come up within you. I get it. I'm not trying to minimize that. Don't hear me trying to minimize that feeling at all. And then one of the things that she brought up is that as she traveled, you know, worldwide, whenever women would ask her about submission, the question never had to do with submission to the government or submission to their, their, their boss or submission to their teacher. It was always submission to their husband. Look, look what she says in one of the, her newsletters. She says, submission, what does it mean? She says, the questions asked of me by women only never seems to refer to submission to civil law, military officers, the boss one works for, or the school teacher. It is submission to a husband that is the sticking point. See, so, so if you're struggling with submission here, I would actually say you don't actually struggle with submission as much as you think. Because if submission was really an issue, you would actually struggle with submission to the government. And you would struggle with submission to your boss. And you would struggle with submission to your parents. So the reality is that you've been submitting. It's just your submission to your husband that bothers you. And I'm not trying to minimize that. I get it. But it's just, let's, let's be honest about what submission actually bothers you. It's that particular submission that gets under your skin. Okay? So you might agree with the president or not, but you're like, I can submit to that guy. I don't have to live with him. But this fool, right? It's hard. So, so don't hear me minimizing this. I'm not trying to minimize the emotions that come up. It's very, very hard. Okay? So we see that submission has always been a part of God's plan. We also see that submission for a long time has been a very big problem. The other thing I want you to see about submission here that I think is so important, if you go back to the passage, uh, when he talks about submitting, she says, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Here's what's interesting. He puts no parameters on it at all. Here's what I mean by that. He doesn't say, hey, submit to your husbands unless he's a non-Christian, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, submit to your husbands unless you make more money than him. He doesn't say, hey, submit to your husbands unless he's an introvert. He says, she says, submit to your husbands. That's it. It's a, it's, it, it, he, he, said, he, he leaves it very general. He doesn't give you any, there's no parameters here. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. Because listen, the only time you should not submit to your husband is when he is sinning against you, is when he's leading you to something that's sin. So whether that's abuse or whether that's um, he's, God's will is this and your husband's will is this, you always go with your first husband's will. But if they're not sinning, then you are submitting. And there's no parameters put on it at all. Okay? Now the other thing I want you to see that's equally as important about submission is that submission is also very personal. And here's why it's so personal, because look what he says. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. In other words, he's not telling women, so if you struggle with submitting to men in general, okay, that's fine. You could. You have a struggle with that. There's nothing in the Bible about that. The Bible says you are to submit to your own husband, the man that you chose. See, we don't live in India where they, they choose your husband when you're six, right? You chose the person you married to. That was your choice. No one forced that on you. And what he's saying is, is that you are to submit to your own husband, not to men in general, not to husbands in general, but to your own husband. Why is that important? Here's why this is important. Because what that means then is that submission looks different from marriage to marriage, okay? 
since you are to submit to your own husband, that means submission can look radically different in one marriage than it does in another marriage. See, what Peter could have done here is Peter could have given you all these different examples of what submission looks like. You don't work. You, you stay in the kitchen. You got you to wear a certain outfit. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give you any qualifications at all. He doesn't tell you how to do it at all. He says, submit to your own husbands. In other words, submission looks different from one couple to the next. You know why I think it's so wise that Peter doesn't give specifics? Because Peter understood that every marriage has different personalities. Every marriage is going to live in a different context and in a different culture. So why would he give you rules on what submission looks like if he knew that there was going to be so many different marriages that were going to spawn up, right? So there's a lot of wisdom in that. But the people who are traditional and legalistic, you're mad right now because you want me to tell you what submission looks like. No, no, tell me, pastor. I got to know because da-da-da-da-da. So the so, so people on this end, they want me to legislate it. And then the people over here, the, the people who get bothered by submission, they want me just to cast it out, throw it out. But Peter, Peter doesn't give us either option. He doesn't want us to legislate it on the one hand and make it a religious thing. But on the other hand, he doesn't want us to throw it away. We are called to submit, but submission looks different from marriage to marriage. And this is what's so funny, that a lot of times marriages judge each other. Right? So you go out to dinner with some friends, and you're like, man, she just walks all over him. Did you notice that, honey? Oh, wow, he does not let her talk. We judge each other all the time. But the reason why we can't is because Peter doesn't tell us what submission looks like, and he says that submission should be based on your own husband. So it looks different depending on the personality, on the context, and on the culture. That's really important. Okay? And the last thing I'll say about submission before I move on is this. Some of you women are sitting here right now. And you're saying to me, well, submission sounds all well and good on Sunday morning, but you have no idea what it's like to be married to my husband Monday through Saturday. You have no idea who I'm married to. You don't know how lazy he is. You don't know how irresponsible he is. You don't know how angry he is. You don't know how mean he is. You know, just fill in the blank, right? Here's the thing. Women who say that, they would say, man, if my husband was perfect, I would have no problem with submitting to him. But here's the problem. And here's how I know that's not the case. Because you do have a perfect husband. His name's Jesus. And you fail to submit to him every day. So if your husband was perfect, the reason why you wouldn't submit is because you do have a perfect husband and you don't submit. So don't go looking for something that you already have and use that as an excuse. Okay? So that's the first thing that a woman is called to do, to submit. The second thing that a woman is called to do is a woman is called to behave. These words get better and better. Like, they're just so ridiculous. But I promise I'm using biblical language, and I promise it's not what you think it is, okay? Look what it says next. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your life. So listen, the second thing that a woman is called to do in her role is she is called to behave. Now, the word behavior there, it means a consistent daily behavior. It is a way of life. It is a manner of life. That's what, that's what the, 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 the word there, behavior, means, okay? And what he's saying is, and he's talking specifically here to the people who are married to people who are not Christians, okay? And just a side note, those of you who are dating people who are not Christians right now and you don't think it's a big deal, this is why it is a big deal, Okay? Because submitting to someone who doesn't know Jesus is the hardest thing you'll ever do, okay? Don't marry someone based on because they're cute or successful or because that's going to go away. 
I wish, you know what I wish one day? I wish I could take all the women here who are married to non-Christians and put them together with all the people who are dating non-Christians and have them talk. And I bet you, you would break up with that person the next day. Okay? Look what he says about behavior. He says, if any of you, if any of you women are married to a man who does not know Jesus, here's how you win them over. You win them over without words. You do it with your behavior. And here's what's interesting about the word words. It's not talking about God's word because there's no definite article before the word words. It's your words. See, because what women who don't have, who have unsaving husbands do is they're always nagging and they're always complaining and they're always demanding and they're always debating. But they're using their words and they're convinced that they can change their husband's mind. But what you're actually doing is you're pushing your spouse further away. He says that the thing that's ultimately going to change your husband's mind about Jesus is not what you say, but what they see. Okay? It's not your talk, it's your walk that's going to change your husband. It says you need to behave without words. And, and then he, he modifies what the behavior looks like. He says when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Now here's, here's why I love this so much. Because what he says is that as women interact with their husbands, here, here's what happens. As you interact with your husband, here's what your behavior should look like. It should, be, it should be marked by purity on the one hand and reverence on the other. The word purity is the word holiness. It's the word that we've been looking at again and again over the past few weeks. Remember what we said holiness means. Holiness means to take, it means to be set apart, to consecrate something, to dedicate something. Holiness means to take your hands off your life and, saying, and say, this belongs to God, it doesn't belong to me. That's what holiness means. Okay? The word reverence there, it means a respect, an honor, a worship, a, a awe of God. That's what the word reverence there means. So what they're saying, this is what Peter is saying about women. Your behavior should be marked by a holiness, but also by a worship of God. So here's why this is so important. Because if holiness means to take your hands off your life and to not try to control things, women who are trying to get their husbands saved do the exact opposite. They put their hands on it and try to manipulate the situation. He says that you are more likely to reach that man when you take your hands off of it and allow God to do his work. And instead, you're, so it's not that you're putting your hands off it and sitting on your hands. No, you spend your time worshiping and honoring God in reverence and being holy with, in particular with your marriage and let God do what he has to do. That's a very interesting approach because I thought the approach that a lot of women take. Your behavior matters and your husband is watching. He is watching. Because the word see there doesn't mean that he's just glancing. It's, it's like a, an investigative look that he's taking. You are being watched. And listen, this is true not just for women who are married to non-Christians. It's true for women who, who are married to Christians. Your husband is watching you. And your example, your behavior, your purity, your reverence has an impact on your husband. I can't tell you how many times I've been going through dry seasons in my spiritual walk. And all I have to do is walk by my wife once when she's reading the Bible or journaling or praying. And, and I will literally feel convicted and say, if my wife is able to worship the Lord like that, then how much more should I worship the Lord? So this is not just for women who don't have uh, believing husbands. It's even for ones who do have believing husbands. Your behavior, your purity, your reverence matters. And it's part of your role as a wife. Okay? So first thing the wife is called to is to submit. The second thing the wife is called to is to behave. And then the last thing the wife is called to is the wife is called to beautify themselves, to grow in beauty. But it's not the beauty that you think. Because look what it says in verse 3. It says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, and the word adornment literally means decorations. Should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or, 
or that he says, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted, to them, they submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You are, this says, her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Listen, the third and final thing that you are called to do as a wife is you are called to grow in beauty. You are called to beautify yourself. But it's not the beauty that you think. See, because w- women are here like, oh, okay, so now you're telling me that I got to stay pretty. And if my husband's not going to love me unless I'm pretty. That's not what this is about. And listen, side note, Peter's not saying that being pretty is bad. He's not saying that makeup is bad. He's not saying that jewelry is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that it's not enough. And if all you're doing is taking two hours to get ready on Sunday morning, and that's all you're focusing on, I would tell you that your problem is not that you're pursuing beauty too much. Your problem is that you're not pursuing beauty enough. Because true beauty is much deeper than what we think. True beauty is internal. True beauty comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. I know the world talks about that. Like Christina Aguilera, you're beautiful no matter what you say. Like you, I know the world talks about that. But the world actually has no reason to say that because without Jesus, there's nothing beautiful inside of us. And without Jesus, what's inside of us is worse than what's outside of us. So you're beautiful no matter what you say? No, that's not true. If Jesus is in you, you're beautiful no matter what you say. Because true beauty comes from the Holy Spirit being inside you. And true beauty doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. And then he describes, look how he describes, he, he, she describes, uh, he describes this beauty about a woman. If you uh, go back to the previous slide. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. The word outward there means superficial, uh, uh, surface, um, exterior decorations. So what it literally means. Exterior, superficial decorations. And then if you go to the next slide over, next slide over. He says, rather, it should be that of your inner self. The word inner self there means your private self, your hidden self, your secret self. And that the beauty that you should be producing is an unfading beauty. The word unfading there, it means incorruptible, immortal beauty. So godly beauty is different from worldly beauty because if I had a graph in front of me, worldly beauty goes like this. It starts high and then it trends down. You're, you're a certain, you look a certain way at 25, and then you look a, a different way at 75. And you know what's really awkward? People who are 75 who are still trying to dress like they're 25. Okay? Worldly beauty trends down. Godly beauty trends up. This beauty, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more beautiful you become. It's an immortal, imperishable, uncorruptible, undecaying beauty that only the Holy Spirit can give you. That's the beauty you should be pursuing. Is the other beauty bad? No, but it's not enough. And it's not what impresses God. It's the beauty, that's why it says, which is of great worth in God's sight. God's impressed by the second beauty, not by the first. And then he talks to us about what that beauty is. It is a beauty that is marked by a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle there is meek, and which is the, the only other person in scripture that's described as that is Jesus, good person to be compared to. And then the word there, quiet, it doesn't mean quiet like you got to go sit somewhere in the kitchen and never talk. But the word quiet there means peaceful spirit. It means an undisturbed spirit. It means a stillness. It means to be still and know that God, that, no, be still and know that I am God. That's what that means, the word there, quiet. That's the real beauty that we should be seeking after. And guys, just side note before we move on to the next point. Listen, if you're a guy here today and you're making a decision about who you should date, 
make a decision based on the beauty that lasts, not on the beauty that ends in 20 years. As you decide who you're going to be with, do not make a decision. Unfortunately, here's how a lot of guys make decisions. They go into a room, and if there's 20 girls, 15 of them are disqualified just because of how they look. And then they consider the five that look a certain way. Do looks matter? I'm not saying they don't. But when that's the primary thing you're considering, you're going to be with someone who their beauty is going to decline over time, and the real beauty, that's the godly beauty, might not ever even be produced. Okay? So, that is the role of the woman. And all of you are still here, so I'm glad you don't hate me. Okay, so that's the, that's the first one, the role of the woman. The second thing we see in this passage is we see the role of the husband, the role of the husband. If, if you can go to verse 7 for me. Here's what we're going to see about the role of the husband. Just like the woman has three things they need to do, the husband also has three things they need to do. So I'm going to give you the list. The first one's probably going to surprise you the most. The first thing that a husband is called to do is a husband is called to submit to his wife. Oof. Oh, okay. We're going to get to that one, okay? So the first thing the husband is called to do is a husband is called to submit to his wife. The second thing that a husband is called to do is a husband is called to consider his wife. And then the third thing the, wife, the husband is called to do is the husband is called to care for his wife, okay? So the husband is called to submit, to consider, and to care. So let's look at each one of these. The first thing that a husband is called to do is a husband is called to submit to his wife. Now, where do I get that? Well, in verse 7, he says, husbands in the same way. Now, if you go back to verse 1, he says, wives in the same way. The reason why he uses the phrase twice is because he's making reference to the end of chapter 2, where he just finished talking about submission for several verses. Okay? So he says in the same way because men, husbands, they are also submitting to their wives. Now, before you call me a heretic, here's why this is true. Because in Scripture, not only, not only does the Bible say that we all submit to God, but the Bible also says that we are all called to submit to one another. And the reason why a man submits to his wife, even though, so here, let me say this. The man is called to submit to his wife, just like the wife is called to submit to him. But the submissions look different. Just like my submission to the president looks different than my submission to my boss, my, submission, my wife's submission to me looks different from my submission to her. But we are both called to submit. Now, here's, what I want, here's how I would explain what, ma- what male husband submission looks like. When I make a decision in my family, I don't care if it's a small or a big one, I rarely ever make a decision without going to my wife about it. I don't care if it's financial. I don't care if it's parental. I don't care if it's relational. I don't care if it's vocational. I go to my wife, and I want her to know what she thinks. And here's the thing. I'm, it's not just like a, an opinion poll. Like if she tells me no, like if I think it's yes and she says no, most of the time, I'll, say, I'll go with what she says because I'm like, she knows something I don't know. Here's the thing. Here's how I heard one commentator explain it. He said, if the husband is the thermostat, the wife is the thermometer. So listen, men, listen. Whatever spiritual condition your home is in right now, it's your fault. Okay? When God comes taking account for what happened, just like he came to Adam, he's coming after you first. Okay? So that's why, what that means is you're the thermostat of your house, but your wife is the thermometer. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of times you're the thermostat, but you don't really know what temperature you're set at. You know who'll tell you? Your wife. Okay? So in my house, I set the temperature because I'm the thermostat, but many times after interacting with my wife, I realize, whoa, I'm not where I thought I was. I'm not leading this family the way I thought I should. 
And part of me submitting to her is listening to her when she tells me what the actual temperature of the house is, not the temperature that I think the house is, and then I adjust my leadership based on the feedback she just gave me. So you're the thermostat, but she's the thermometer. That's really important. That's part of what submitting to your wife looks like. It's, it's, it's I am always seeking my wife's wisdom. I am always seeking my wife's feedback. I do not make decisions without her. There are many areas in my marriage that I'm not even thinking about because I know my wife is taken care of. And I believe in her leadership to lead in those areas. There are things that Lily does with my kids that I'm not aware of. There's things, there's several things that I just trust my wife with because we are, I am submitting to her, she's submitting to me. That's what true submission looks like. See, submission sounds really icky on the surface, but when you're actually doing it right, you don't even think about it. Like no one, if you're in a healthy marriage, you're not thinking about submission. Like no one's like, oh, I gotta, it's Monday, I gotta submit again. <laughs> if you're in a healthy relationship, you're not even thinking about it because it happens naturally. It's very organic. It's very organic. Actually, I would say, here's what I would say, that if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with submission and you're married, there's a good chance that there's probably something wrong in your marriage. Okay? Because there's something that your husband's doing or not doing that makes you say, I don't want to submit to him. And that actually says that there's something deeper going on. Okay? So this is really, that's really important. That's what it means to come alongside and to submit to your wife. Now, here's what's interesting. We do this in every other place. It's not, it's not like this is like groundbreaking news. Like, for example, I am the pastor of Tri Village Church, right? But God has given me incredible leaders that I work with um, here at our church. We have people who are staff leaders. So it's Doug Wall, Jim Lenane, Tom Wisniewski, my wife Lily, Melissa Duncan, Carol, Jen Westering. And what these people do is they come alongside me. Just on Tuesday, we met together and we were talking and we were praying and we were making decisions. Listen, I don't make a decision unless those people are with me. I want to seek their insight. I want to seek their wisdom. I want to hear what they have to say. There's times where I think I'm going that way and then they'll say something. I'm like, okay, I guess we're going this way. See, in that context, I am technically the leader of the group. But when a decision is made, it shouldn't feel like I'm a tyrant. It should feel like we all came to that decision together. Is God going to hold me accountable ultimately? Yes. But we're making that decision together. That's what real submission actually looks like. And what's interesting is with, with Jim Lenane in particular, he's an elder at our church. So when he comes to our leader meetings, he's under my leadership. But when I go to the elder meetings, I'm under his leadership. It's not like we change hats. It's not like, hey, hey give me this, the leader hat. Okay, 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 yeah, now, now I'll tell you what to do. No, no, it's so organic that we don't even think about it. It just happens naturally. That's what true submission looks like. It shouldn't feel like you're, you're being forced to do something. It should be a natural desire if you're doing it right, okay? So the first thing the husband's called to do is the husband is called to submit to his wife. The second thing that the husband is called to do is the husband, listen to this, is called to consider his wife. Because it says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, the word considerate or consider, here's what it means in Greek. The word consider, it means to, deep, to have a deep knowledge of someone. It means to have a deep understanding of someone, to, to, under, to comprehend someone at a, at a deep level is what the word consider there means. So, men, listen, listen. Nobody, in light of this word, nobody should know your wife better than you. If your wife was a subject, you should be a scholar in that subject. That's what the word consider there means. You should know her strengths. You should know her weaknesses. You should know her love language. You should know her personality type. Nobody should know your wife better than you. And you know what I've noticed? That many times the reason women end up cheating is because there is someone who considers them more than their spouse. They find a man who knows them and considers them more than their spouse. 
That's how important this is to a woman. No one should know your, your, your spouse better than you. Strength, weaknesses, love languages, personality type, nobody. Now here's funny. Lily and I have been married eight years now. So we're getting close to a decade now. And what's interesting is that there's a lot of things that I thought I knew about my wife that now after eight years I realized I had no idea what I was doing, okay? So here are some of the examples of how Lily and I have had to learn in considering. I've had to learn considering my wife. So, so my wife and I, in, in a lot of ways, where you look at the role of the husband and wife, we're, we're kind of flipped. So, so I'm very warm-blooded, so I'm always, always cold. And one of the things that Lily and I always fight over is when we get in the car and it's 30 below out, which is really common now, nowadays, um, and it's that cold, we get in the car, I want to turn the, the top part, the, the, the part that shoots at my face, and you know what she's worried about? Her feet, bro. When it's 30 below, why are you worried about your toes, right? Like, what, what, who does that? Like, my nipple's about to fall off, and you're worried about your pinky toe? Like, that's what, that's what, we're, that's what we're going with, Right? It's freezing outside. So we, we, that was a huge fight at the beginning. And so we learned now that we put both on, so, which kind of stinks because then you really don't get a lot in either. Like it's like half and half, right? Uh, so it stinks. But anyways, it's sin in her life. Uh, anyway, so, um, so, here's, so here's the other thing. Another thing that Lily and I disagreed with disagreed at the beginning is because, because I'm, I'm warm-blooded is for me when it's cold out, I want my house at 70 degrees. I, I'm a 70-degree person. I, I want to just be warm. I want it to be hot. I want it to be nice. I am a warm-blooded individual. My wife wants it like at 39 degrees at the house. And I'm like, baby, let's, hold on, hold on, time out, time out, time out. Why? Why, why would we do that? She said, well, because one, she's like, it, it's gonna, the, the heat's going to turn on anyways, so it doesn't matter what's set at. And she's like, and the other thing is, I want to be a good steward of our money. And I'm like, listen, listen, there's a, there's, there's the thing about being a good steward, and another thing is to live like we're poor, okay? Because like, like, if, if the weather inside my house is the same as the weather outside my house, then I might as well just be outside the house, right? Like, that's why I work. <laughs> that's why we pay bills, Okay. That's a who you fight at the house, man. So I'm sleeping with like 17 layers because we don't want to pay our heating bill, okay? And then the other thing that, we, that we, we, we fought about and I had to grow in in my considering of my wife is that when my wife and I get in a car, we've already had the other conversation, but when we get in a car, I'm always lost. I get lost all the time. I can go to a place 100 times and every time I need a GPS. Like I'm always, always lost. So I can memorize a sermon, but I can't memorize how to get to the local McDonald's. Like I'm horrible at it, Okay. And so when we get in cars, Lily is very good at navigating, but there are certain times where we get in the car and Lily doesn't even know where we're at. Like we, maybe we're in the city or we're in a different part of, of, us, of the suburbs and she's really not that sure. And I'm like, hey, babe, why don't we turn the GPS on? God's grace, right? Common grace. We have it. Let's turn it on. She's like, no, 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 no. Let, let's, let's just figure it out. Let's figure it out. <laughs> it's an adventure, she says. And so after, after a few hours of, you know, just turning and, and, and we're on the south side and I'm like, babe, I'm, I'm dark. I can get killed out here. Okay. Like this is, that is, I can't just be driving around the south side. People might, yeah, confuse me with someone else. Okay. This is dangerous now. And she'll be like, babe, just, just, and it went from like morning to like early evening. And it's like dark out now. And I'm like, honey, I think we should probably turn the GPS on. She's like, no, no, look, look, it's fine. I see the North star. Let's just follow the North star. <laughs> And I'm like, baby, that's a, that's a White Castle, dude. That's not, a, that's not the North Star. Right? And so this is, this is what I'm dealing with, people. Okay? Like, this is the, the struggles of the Franco family. 
And so I had to learn how to consider my wife. I didn't know she was going to be weird, but now I know, you know, and so I had to adjust. And so I've had to adjust. And so that's what considering is. And listen, the only way we grow in consideration is if you live with your wife. It says, in the same way, be considerate as you live. The word live there, it means to dwell with someone. It means to be, it means, it means intentional proximity with someone. The only way I can grow in my consideration of Lily is, is if, as I dwell with them. Not just, a lot of people are close to each other in proximity, but it's unintentional proximity. They're in one room, you're in another, you're not really getting to know each other. What the word dwell there, or the word live there means, it means to dwell, to, to come alongside each other and to have intentional proximity. Intentional proximity results in deep biblical intimacy. Intentional proximity results in biblical intimacy. So, the first thing the man does is he submits to his wife. The second thing the man does is he considers his wife. And then the last thing, according to this passage, that a man does is a man cares for his wife. And I get that from the fact that he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So the third and final thing that a man is called to do is a man is called to care for his wife. The word there, treat, it means to treat someone uh, to the degree that they deserve. In other words, I need to treat my wife not based on what she actually deserves, but based on what her role deserves. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a baseline that I can't go under. I need to treat my wife. The word there, respect, means to honor, to value, to esteem her. There's a baseline I can't go under because of the role my wife plays. So on the one hand, marriage is very personal because of what we said. There's, there's this mar- every marriage looks different. But on the other hand, marriage is very objective. In other words, it doesn't matter who I'm married to. There's a certain baseline behavior that I'm supposed to give to that woman because of the role that they played in my life. Does that make sense? So on the one hand, marriage is very subjective, because it changes from marriage to marriage, but on the other hand, it's very objective, because the wife is called to submit no matter who the husband is, and the husband is called to honor and respect no matter who the wife is. That's what marriage is. And so I have to come alongside my wife, and I have to honor her and esteem her and value her more than anybody else in my life. There's no one you should love more than your wife, well, outside of God. There's no human being you should love more than your wife, according to what this verse is saying. And it says, the reason why you want to treat them that way is because they are the weaker partner. Now, I know that sounds really offensive, but here's all it means. It doesn't mean that you're weaker intellectually. It doesn't mean that you're weaker spiritually. It doesn't even mean that you're weaker emotionally. The word weaker there has only to do with physical, physical weakness. That by and large, not every time, but by and large, men are stronger than women. That's all he makes, he's referencing to when he says weaker partner. And so because I am the stronger partner, one of the roles that I have as a husband is to provide and to protect for my wife. That doesn't mean she can't work. It doesn't mean she can't work out. But I am the provider and the protector of my wife, according to this passage, because she is the weaker partner. And then I love what he says after that. He says, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. The reason why you and I should be pastoring, should be providing and protecting and pastoring our wives is because they were created in the image of the same God, and they were, they were purchased by the blood of the same Savior. You and your wife are equals in the eyes of the Lord because you're created in the image of the same God and you are purchased by the blood of the same Savior. And so my job as, your, as my husband, as my, as my Lily's husband, and your job as husbands, listen, is to pastor your wife and to point her into her deeper, if she's an heir of the gospel, then you need to point her into her deeper understanding and identity of that gospel. That is your job, is to pastor your wife and to remind her that our ultimate identity, value, and worth doesn't come from what you say about her, but from what her heavenly husband says about her. That's your job. Okay? 
So that's the role of the husband. So we've looked at the role of the wife. We've looked at the role of the husband. And the last thing I want to do as we conclude is I want to look at the role of the bridegroom, the role of the bridegroom. Now, here's what's interesting about the role of the bridegroom. In order for us to have a godly, gospel-centered marriage, there has to be a third person in the picture. And when I say a third person, I don't mean polygamy, but what I mean is there has to be, there's, there's someone else that has to be present. And this individual's role is the most important role in your marriage. It's the most important role in your, in your marriage, the role of this individual. And that individual is the bridegroom, and the bridegroom is Jesus. Listen, if you are going to have a godly, gospel-centered marriage, Jesus is the most important person in that marriage. His role is the most crucial role in that marriage. And just like the man has certain things he has to do and the woman has certain things he has to do, there are, there are two things that this bridegroom does that neither partner can do. And here's why he's so essential. The first thing he does is he fulfills each role. The first thing he does is he fulfills each role. The second thing he does, not only does he fulfill each role, but he also changes each person. He fulfills each role and he changes each person. Let me explain. The first reason, the first thing he does is he changes, he fulfills each role. And here's what I mean by that. Every single thing that the husband and the wife are called to do, nobody has done them better than Jesus. And so the wife, for example, is called to submit to her husband, right? But what we, what we, if you go back to the passage, if you look at the uh, um, verse uh, 6, and you go to verse 6, it says something really interesting there, at the end of verse 6, sorry, so the next slide. He says, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So what Peter is saying there is that one of the things that keeps you from submitting is fear. It's, in the word fear there, it means to be terrified. You're scared that you might be hurt. You're scared that you might be abused. You're scared that you might be, you know, manipulated or stepped on. And th- those are legitimate fears, Right? But many times, not always, but many times those fears never actually come to pass. In some cases they do, and you should probably consider the marriage, but then there's something else you got to talk about. But, but in many times, those fears that we have about submitting don't ever actually come to pass. But here's why Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of, of submission. Because Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, I, I, the Son of Man came not to be stirred, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So listen to what Jesus is saying there. This is really important. What he's saying is, I came to be submissive. I came not to be submitted to. I came to be the one that submits. And then he says, and to give my life as a ransom for many. So listen, the reason why women struggle with submission is because they have a fear that they might be abused, that they might be manipulated, that they might be stepped on. And sometimes they do, but many times they don't. Jesus showed up submitting, knowing that he was going to be abused, that he was going to be killed. Because he says, I submit. Why? Because I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So he's saying, the fear that might happen to you, the thing that might happen to you did happen to me. And yet he's the ultimate example of submission. But not only is he the ultimate example of submission, Jesus is also the the ultimate example of beauty. Because in the passage it says that true beauty is internal. True beauty is the unfading beauty that comes from honoring and and having reverence for God. If that's what true beauty is, then the most beautiful person that's ever lived is Jesus. Not outward beauty, because Isaiah Isaiah tells us that he wasn't a good-looking person, but he had inner beauty like no one else. And yet at the cross, Jesus became ugly so that we might step into his beauty. 
So he fulfills that part too. But not only does he fulfill those two parts, but he also, in the passage, it says that the beauty that we are given is an unfading, immortal, uncorruptible, undecaying beauty. Well, here's the thing. The only person that's ever come to earth that is unfading, un- un- incorruptible, um, 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 un- uh, not able to decay is Jesus. And yet at the cross, the immortal one became mortal. At the cross, the imperishable one became perishable. At the cross, the, vo- the, the powerful one became vulnerable. At the cross, the uncorruptible killable one became killable for you and for me. And so the beautiful thing about Jesus is that the only person that was immortal became mortal so that we might experience immortality. But not only that, Jesus, not only did he fulfill the roles of the wife, but he also fulfills the roles of the husband because the husband, as the stronger partner, is supposed to look out and serve the weaker partner. Well, Jesus is the ultimate stronger partner, and at the cross, he becomes the weaker partner so that through faith in him, we might step into his strength. And then not only that, but it says that we are heirs with Christ. And what's beautiful about that is that the only, we're heirs with one another, but the only reason why we can be heirs is because Jesus, the only true heir of God's riches, at the cross, he, he crossed his name off the will so that we might become beneficiaries. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of each role. But listen, not only is he the ultimate fulfillment of each role, he is also the only person that can change each person. And here's why. Because Jesus is not just the foundation of our marriage. He is the fountain of our marriage. So here's what this means. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the cornerstone, that your marriage needs to be built on Jesus. Jesus is not just the foundation. He's the fountain. So here's what this means. He is both the standard that you're living up to, but he's also the source that gives you the power to get to that standard. So he's the foundation, yet the fountain. So he holds your marriage up, and yet he pushes your marriage on. He's both. Jesus is both the the, the provider and the producer. So Jesus, because he's the perfect spouse that we've all looked for, Jesus is the provider of the spouse that we've always needed, and yet he's also the producer of the spouse that we've always wanted. He's both at the same time. He's both at the same time. He came to do that for you and for me. And then one of the things I want you to see here, if you go back to the previous slide, It says that when you live and pursue this beauty, it is of great worth in God's sight. It is of great worth in God's sight. And one of the things that Tim Keller says in his book on marriage that I just find just beautiful, he says that the one thing that every spouse wants is the praise of their spouse, is the the, the love and the commitment and the unconditional uh, 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 covenant of their spouse. That's what every spouse wants more than anything else. And here's what he says. He, he tells the story. He says, listen, if after one of my services, someone comes up to me and says, hey, Tim, you are a very godly person, he would say, hey, thanks. That's, that means a lot. Or, hey, 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 Tim, you're a very compassionate person. He'd be like, hey, great, thanks. But he says, listen, at the end of the day, that person doesn't really know me. He's like, but if my wife said I was godly, if my wife said I was compassionate, the person who knew me better than anybody, then... That would be like receiving praise from the praiseworthy. The person who really knows me is the person who really loves me. Here's what he says. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. You can be single. You could be married. You can be divorced. You can be widowed. If in God's eyes, our ultimate spouse, he sees us that we have great worth, if your ultimate spouse loves you, accepts you, has praised you, is unconditionally committed to you, if that's true, then it doesn't matter if you never marry anybody. You are already experiencing the marriage God wants you to experience. Because our, our marriages here on earth are penultimate. They're not ultimate. They're penultimate. So if you're single and you never get married, 
It's the way Pastor Lon described it a long time ago. He said, it's like having a picture of something and then seeing something. I can have a picture of my wife when I'm on the road. But when I have my wife in front of me, I don't need the picture anymore, right? All marriage is is a picture. And so some of us get the picture because we get married. Some of us never get the picture. But we're all one day going to see the reality of it. And once you get the reality, the picture doesn't matter anymore. That's the beauty of marriage. That it's not ultimate, it's penultimate. It's not the destination, it's a signpost that points us to the destination. And that destination is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, if you understand that, that your ultimate value, acceptance, and security comes from what God says and not from what your spouse says, once you understand that, here's what happens. When you understand that that's where your real security comes from, it keeps people who have good marriages from idolizing their marriages, and it keeps people who have bad marriages from ignoring their marriages. If my ultimate identity comes from what that spouse says, then I'm not going to idolize the good marriage I'm in, and I'm not going to ignore and hate the bad marriage I'm in. You have this balance now because you realize that your vertical relationship with that spouse has major implications with your horizontal relationships with the spouse that's in front of you. It changes everything. I was talking to my wife uh, a few months ago, and I asked her, I said, you know, can you tell me what it felt like to be a bride? Obviously, I was there, but I was on the other side of the equation, right? And I'm like, what are some of the things that went through your mind? And she said, it was funny because when I got to, uh, we got married at a church called Grace Mini Bible Church over in Roselle. And, and she's like, when I got to the doors, before the doors opened, when I got to the doors, she's like, there was two things that hit me right at the same time. On the one hand, I felt this incredible peace because there was all these things that I thought mattered. And when I got there, I realized they didn't matter. I thought they mattered, but then I realized they didn't matter. She's like, but on the other hand, I, I felt this incredible anxiety because I was thinking when these doors open, is he going to love me? Is he going to accept me? Is he going to find me beautiful? You know what? I think that's the question that I think those are the things that we all will, will realize one day. I think one day when we get to the ultimate marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and before those doors open as, as his bride, we're going to be worried about two things. On the one hand, we're going to realize all the things that I thought mattered don't matter including my earthly marriage. But on the other hand, there's going to be a fear in us. Is, is he going to find me beautiful? Is he going to accept me? Is he going to embrace me? And here's why we know he will. The reason why Jesus will find you beautiful is because he became ugly for you. The reason why Jesus is going to embrace you is because his father rejected him. The reason why Jesus is not going to abandon you is because the father abandoned him. We have, the reason why you know Jesus is going to reach across the aisle is because he reached across from heaven. See, when you understand that, it changes everything. The only way you're going to play your role as the wife and your role as the husband is if you understand and believe in the role of the bridegroom. Amen?